The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. This is episode number 295. Just a reminder, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that when people are suffering from addiction, they can find our podcast and hopefully get some hope and some help. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and give our videos a thumbs up. If you'd like to be notified when we put up a new video, ring the bell. Today's episode is an interview with a gentleman named Michael Gray. Michael Gray is the CEO of Actus Analytical Incorporated, which develops spectroscopy solutions for public safety. Michael and his wife, Nancy, founded the Actus Foundation in 2018, shortly after the death of their daughter, Amanda, who was killed by poisoning of straight fentanyl at the age of 24. The Actus Foundation advocates for solutions to treating the entirety of the overdose epidemic problem in America, including the largely forgotten constituency of intermittent users. He founded with partner Ed Kobelis in 2019, the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, a coalition of tens of thousands of advocates in the United States alone. Without further ado, let's talk to Michael Gray. Michael Gray, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story and telling us what you are doing now. Thank you. Thank you for having me here, Johnny. I appreciate uh, anybody who's going to try to get this story out. We have a lot to say. There's a uh, a real missing perspective in America that uh, the, my coalition speaks to, and I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Michael, give us a little bit of your background, where you grew up what your family was like, your kids, um, you know, and, and what happened with Amanda. Give us the background. Uh, sure. So um, our story is going to be a little bit different, um, you know, even going to the core of what my organization is all about. We really don't talk uh, to the problem of addiction uh, and overdose because that's not what we experienced. And that's not what arguably most of the people are experiencing now who lose children to this. So it's not a story of, of how our family was led down a path into a, a addiction and substance use disorder. We were a typical uh, happy family here in uh, the North Shore of Long Island. I've been, a, I've been in the tech business all my life. So my children spent their younger years in Silicon Valley. Um, mm. My son was born out there in California. And uh, in the late 90s, we moved back here to New York. I was still in the tech business in the semiconductor manufacturing business. Uh, but I found a position back here on the East Coast, back with family and uh, back home. So we took that in the late 90s and our kids were still pretty young. So they settled in here to life in Long Island. So they were more or less raised uh, here in the North Shore of Long Island. Um, we live in a small town, uh, oh, four or five miles east of LaGuardia Airport on the North Shore of Long Island called Manhasset. And so that's where my kids essentially grew up. Uh, very typical sort of uh, middle class uh, family lifestyle. We're devout Catholics. My Children, um, my children went to Catholic school throughout their lives. But as far as, um, you know, there's really nothing unusual in, in, in our lifestyle or the way they grew up. Uh, but we did notice with my daughter, we noticed some things about her from very young that she was different. Mm. 
And that would be uh, that would be the beginnings of a mental health disorder, a, a severe psychiatric disorder that my daughter had uh, diagnosed as um, acute uh, borderline personality disorder. And I think our story with her is really a fairly typical story of mental illness, mm. uh, much more so than it is of any kind of substance uh, abuse or substance use disorder problem. And when I say mental illness, that's even one of the other things I like to distinguish. Um, you know, again, in this, when people are, we're talking in the, in the world of illicit drugs and people have been harmed by illicit drugs and died from illicit drugs, you're often talking about people who had, you know, emotional problems and psychological problems. My daughter's case, we're talking about a fairly obvious, fairly acute, endemic, lifelong organic mental illness. And frankly, we didn't understand it as a young child. We thought, wow, this child is going to do anything she wants. She'll be president of the United States. I mean, this she'll be, a, she'll be a general in the military. I mean, she had so much charisma, so much leadership uh, capacity. She was so intelligent. And when she got to 12 or 13 years old, you started to see it more as an abnormality than something that was just really intense and, 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 and endearing because she was a child. And it progressed probably at a fairly steady rate into more acute and more behavioral oriented throughout her teen years. I mean, she was generally a pretty, uh, generally a happy kid. She had a lot of friends, uh, certainly parents who loved her dearly. She loved us dearly. She loved her brother. They got along well. I mean, it was many, nothing really uh, terribly negative, but she started to feel more and more of that difference in her and more and more isolated and that she was different. Throughout her teen years, there were some difficulties, but generally speaking, she did okay. We sent her off to college and that's when the wheels came off the bus. That independence for the first time she started partying at college, and I guess in ways that were just shocking to people, the intense behaviors, the, um, you know, the, 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 the intense, you know, drinking and, and just partying and, and just wild behavior. And um, Michael, you know, I'm sorry, if I could just take you back. So yeah. when you when you observe this type of behavior in her, especially yeah. when she was 13, did you take her to counselors? Did she get on any kind of medication? Yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I went over an important part of this. I don't I don't often tell her story because I'm speaking to the to more or less the science of the of the fentanyl problem. And I, I don't typically tell Amanda story very often. Understood. Uh, so I can miss some facts. Yeah. So when she was about uh, 14, she had an incident in school. <clears throat> we took her through to a therapist. He said she would she was, um, you know, not in any kind of self-harm danger or anything, but she definitely had some issues. Uh, now, we were moving at the time, so um, we, we, we sort of didn't get her into a counseling. And then when she was 16, she found her own. She went to a psychologist. She knew something was wrong. She knew she wasn't right. So by the, she came home and she said, I saw this guy. He thinks he can help me, and I want to start seeing him, so I need you to approve. So that was okay. when she was 16. She got her diagnosis at 17, which is very young for a diagnosis. Okay. And was and she then, on any kind of medication? Yeah, so she was on various medications over time. I think her, I, I mean, th there's a list. Anybody who's been through mental illness will know the Seroquels and the, and yeah. the uh, Lamictals and the, and the different things she was on. The main one that she used and is core to this story is um, benzodiazepine, clonopin. Uh, that was okay. her, her go-to because Amanda's illness manifests in a very specific way. Once she went away to college and the disease sort of really then expanded and took her over, you know, and, and, and now 
when she before she went away to college, she was still a relatively happy kid who had some difficult times. I would say once she was gone away and when she would come back home, we saw she was now a person suffering a mental health disorder who had certain moments of clarity. I would almost mm-hmm. say it reversed, right? And the clonopin was a way to deal with a, a unique manifestation she had where she would hit these manic states every few weeks. Okay. And she would go into a manic state where, you know, she'd be arrested. I mean, she'd do something crazy and wild and just and be, 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 be arrested. So what she would do is she started to get to a point if she knew this process, she felt the dynamic. So she would use the benzodiazepine to sort of clip that manic, that manic rise. And um, she came to count on it that way. She called it the process of turning off her brain. She said her mm. brain would get very noisy. She would sense this. The benzo would, would tune it down, right? Okay. okay. I used to liken it to she was the wolf man locking herself in a cage at the full moon, you know. Under- understood. Before he turned. Understood. And, uh, so that's how she managed it. And that's important because what ended up happening was she had a terrible psychotic incident at Gen- JFK Airport. She was arrested. She was brought to um, Jamaica Hospital. She was then uh, committed by the state of New York to a state facility out on Long Island. Um, Mm. And so over the course of a year or so, we fought with her about, you know, getting into certain programs. So we finally got her to a very good psychiatric hospital uh, in late 2017. Uh, She was very excited, the best, most excited we'd seen her in five years. They, They did a process there called Dialectical Behavior Therapy, DBT. She thought this was the promise to help her with her disorder. She was very excited about it. She was very happy about it. She spun out of there. She wanted to stay longer, but the program couldn't be extended, uh, which is another problem I, I talk about when I talk about mental health and, and, and the disgrace that our mental health system is in America. Dan Carity, if I'm being honest, is the new powerful podcast to listen to. Dan is a globetrotting television personality, a choreographer to stars like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, a loving husband and father, and a man struggling with addiction and anxiety. On his podcast, he shares ugly truths from his life in front of and away from the camera, and those of his courageous guests as well, from the world of entertainment, sports, media, and medicine, such as NFL player Ryan Leaf, pioneer DJ Don Diablo, actor and comedian Jamie Kennedy, and many more. So check out his new podcast, Dan Carity, If I'm Being Honest, on Spotify, Apple, and Google, or go to his website, www.dancarity.com. That's www.dancarity.com. Now here is an incredible success. Roger Smith was kicked out of high school was homeless, a drug addict, arrested multiple times, and yet this same man overcame incredible adversity and became the CEO of American Income Life Insurance, National Income Life Insurance, and Liberty National Life Insurance Companies. His journey is told in his new memoir, The Most Unlikely Leader. Roger is an example that no matter how low you go in life, you can always turn things around and become anything you set your mind to. If you are stuck in any real-life challenge, this book is a fantastic must-read for you. The Most Unlikely Leader, available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. But because of that disgrace, there was no extended program, so they had to put her into an IOP. 
And that IOP really was not a psychiatric facility doing DBT. It was nothing of the sort. During that process, they introduced her to a new psychiatrist who decided to change all her medications. He took away her benzodiazepine. He replaced every one of her medications. She was in a panic. She didn't know what to do. So she went on the street to buy something to turn uh, off. I was going to ask, yeah. And it, killed, and it killed her. It was straight up fentanyl and it killed her. And what did she think it was? What was she buying? Do you know? I, I, I guess she thought it was uh, diacetylmorphine or some okay. sort. Okay, okay, okay. So, but it turned out to be straight fentanyl, uh, pure, and it killed her. I'm sorry. Thank you so much. Um, so anyway, the, the turn of the story, Joni, is I started thinking about it. And I was involved, I've been involved in the drug industry throughout my career in different capacities. My career has been based in scientific instrumentation. So I've worked in drug QA departments. I've worked in uh, uh, counterfeit drug detection using scientific instruments to oh. um, to do process control. Even, even before all this went down with Amanda, oh, you were already oh, Before Amanda was born. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, my first sale to the pharma industry was, was to Merck probably when we first got married before Amanda was born. So I've been wow. involved in these things throughout my career. Okay. And in the latter part of my career, just before Amanda died, I was working for a company called Thermo Fisher Scientific, and we made a little uh, device from a Raman spectrometer called a Trunark, which is used by police officers. It's a little spectrometer they can carry on their hip, and it, they can point it at a bag and know if they're dealing with an illicit drug. So I've been involved in this throughout the years. My last year at Thermo, I started my own company about six years ago. I left Thermo Fisher Scientific, started my own company. And when I did, um, the last thing I worked on at Thermo was counterfeit drug detection uh, wow. using, using uh, Raman spectrometers oh. uh, and, and, and infrared spectrometers. So I have a lot of expertise in this, a, a lot of knowledge of it. So I started looking at what happened to Amanda. Right. The first call when it happened, it was like, wait a second opioids, drugs, fentanyl, like that, that was the, that was not the problem with Amanda. We knew Amanda had a very serious uh, life-threatening illness, but frankly, uh, you know, the, the mortality rate of, of someone with Amanda's diagnosis was told to me by one psychiatrist of probably her best guess, 50%, 50-50 that she'd lived, but the vast majority of those deaths are suicides. Right. So we were certainly worried about suicide. We were worried about the problem she'd get into in a manic state. We worried right. that Amanda would be found, you know, chopped up in a ditch near a truck stop someplace. I mean, we worried about those kinds of things with her. Right. We weren't thinking about drug overdose. That right. Was not on, right. Our, on our radar. So when I started to think through what happened to her, I realized that there was a whole dynamic unfolding in this opioid crisis that everyone was missing. The counterfeit drugs. Yep. And I started to come around to this thinking and come around to this thinking. And then I saw a presentation by a scientist at a conference on a video three years after it happened. And because of what he said in that conference and my ability to interpret it three years later with more data, mm -hmm. the light bulb went off. And yep. I found the problem that everyone was missing. And frankly, everyone is still missing. And that is this. And I'll try to say it in the shortest way I can. My daughter died from a poisoning by a, a deadly drug. She did not die of overdose. Right. And, and, and my daughter did not die of overdose because if you're going to tell me someone overdosed, you have to tell me what they overdosed on. And overdose is the process of, of either intentionally or unwittingly taking too much of something you intended to take. Right. If it's not something you intended to take, then it's either an accidental or intentional poisoning. 
Mm. My daughter did not intend to take any fentanyl. Right. She did not overdose on fentanyl because you have to know what you have to know what it is to overdose on it. She didn't overdose on whatever she thought it was because there was none of that in it. Right. So it's not an over. It's literally not an overdose. Right. So that leads me back to this statement, which was my core realization when I saw this presentation. And that was this. Death by overdose in America. Call it call it. Overdose is a subset of the problem of addiction. Right. Generally speaking, when we're talking illicit drugs, street level drugs, it's people who are addicted who overdose and die. Yes, some people go to a party and try heroin for the first time in their lives and snort up enough of it and get themselves hurt. But generally speaking, that wasn't. Yeah, typically, you don't overdose unless you're already addicted and you just right. do too much of it for whatever reason. Yeah. And this was the problem for 100 years. From the beginning of the Controlled Substance Act and trying to fight, fight opium smoking down to uh, 2013, the year before fentanyl arrived, we had a one type of drug death in America. It was overdose and it was addicts dying. Right. What happened in 2013 is what I call the great paradigm shift. And that is that the, there was a decision by the, by the Chinese uh, chemical companies and I believe complicit with the government to send fentanyl to America to supplant the uh, heroin that people were using and to feed our opioid crisis. That arrived, and we know the data, that's, that's beyond question, it arrived in sudden and mass volumes in the year 2013. Wow. Nowhere. Wow. So I would argue there was something what I would call a paradigm shift. So if you picture it this way, Joni, Overdose deaths prior to 2013, we could argue, were the result of addictive behavior. And right, right. So for every so many people that use, so many get addicted. For every so many that are addicted, someone's going to die. Exactly. And so this, And if you plotted that data from 1979 to 2014, as I saw the scientists do, it was very stable and linear, and it grew at a very linear path. Right. It was very stable, very controlled. What started to happen in 2013 with fentanyl is that stable linear slope kinked upwards because fentanyl has is less forgiving in terms of therapeutic index than it's than what it's replacing in in heroin or diacetylmorphine, and so the death rate relative to the number of addicts went up. Yep. Okay, that's a problem. That's a big problem. That's a paradigm shift. That's a new paradigm of death. Yep. Because it's a more deadly substance. Right. Okay? That was only the first step of the problem, though, because we were still dealing with a pool of eligibles for death who were the addicted opioid users. These are maybe two and a half million people in America. So we had a death rate amongst two and a half million in 2012. We had a higher death rate amongst those 200 and, uh, uh, amongst those 22.5 million in 2014. Mm-hmm. Okay, but this is still not a crisis. This is still a controlled problem. It's a tragic problem. It's a terrible problem, but it's not a crisis, which is a Greek word for something that implies a sudden change. Okay, there was no sudden change. Between the years 2015 and 2019, culminating in 2019, but beginning very fast in 2015, the manufacture of fentanyl started shifting from China to Mexico. Mm. Originally, the Chinese were making it and they were sending it mostly by the U.S. mail and a good chunk through the uh, ports of Canada and the ports of Mexico. But the bulk of it was coming in the U.S. mail. 
Over time, as we started to shut down that U.S. mail, very good actions by the federal government called the STOP Act, uh, which really helped to, to beef up our security at the postal services, and we started to shut all that down, we started to see disproportionately more of it coming down through that southern border in the form of precursor chemicals sent from China, turned into fentanyl by Mexico, Mexican drug lords, and then pushed into the United States as fentanyl. Interesting. Okay. There's a very, this is the most important thing, arguably, that's ever happened in America. It's certainly the most important thing that's happened in our drug crisis. And that is this. The shift from Chinese manufacturing of fentanyl, which only began in 2013, and that shift two or three years later into Mexico was not just a shift of geographic location. But more importantly, it was a shift from an ocean, you know, an ocean separation to a border separation, a border that, it, that, that is the source of all kinds of debate, whether we, whether we police it. It isn't much of a border anymore, basically. Right. And even if it were, it's still a contiguous border, so it's just more difficult to manage than an ocean. Okay, right. But that's even still not the important difference. Here's the important difference. The Chinese who were producing this were pharmaceutical companies, scientists. They, 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 don't know any, they don't know more about illicit drugs than anything else. They were just producing this chemical, putting it out in bulk somewhere, and then what happened to it happened to it. When the, when the Mexican drug cartel started making it, these are expert illicit drug traffickers. And what I mean by this is let's not underestimate these people. They know as much about illicit drug marketing as Nike knows about sportswear marketing. Right. These are world-class experts in the marketing right. for illicit drugs. So they got this fentanyl powder that up to that point was replacing heroin, diacetylmorphine in the streets. And the first thing they said is, well, why limit it to the two and a half million kids who snort, smoke, or shoot powdered heroin? If we just press this into a pill, a counterfeit pill, we get to all the kids who take an Oxy, take a Percocet, right? Well, that's yep. like 20 million kids. That's tenfold yep. the market. Yep. Wait a second, we're not done yet. Don't mm -hmm. they like to take benzodiazepines and, and, and methamphetamine Adderall and all of a sudden? Oh yeah, well, let's just put fentanyl all of it yep. and get to 35 million kids who take an illicit pill ever. Okay, now think about something, Joni. You increase the death rate of the people using, right? Mm -hmm. Increase that rate within the population of two and a half million. You then increase the population 10 to 15 times. So you dragged that higher death rate and you vectored it into a, 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 into a pool of eligibles that's 15 times bigger. Yep. That's the crisis. Yep. That's the sudden change and the crisis. But here and now again, when so now the crisis is built on a problem that is a completely different paradigm than the paradigm that all our solutions are built on, which is addiction. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. 
Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So now we're trying to fight a massive crisis problem with all the wrong resources and Interesting. all the wrong ideas. This is what the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition is all about. We have to understand that fentanyl represents a paradigm shift in how people die from drugs. And if there's one guarantee I can promise you for my 35 years working in science is if you continue to operate to an old paradigm, when there's a new paradigm afoot, you will fail. Yeah. And we are failing and we're failing because there's a new paradigm and we're not recognizing it. The term paradigm shift was coined by a physicist because uh, from Stanford University who knew that his fellow world-class physicists were themselves subject to getting stuck into paradigms. So we created this term to get people to recognize that you have to get out of your paradigm of thinking. And so if we don't start thinking about how to deal with the kid who takes one Xanax pill one time in their life at one party and dies from it, we're not going to fix that with a new rehab. We're not going to fix that with a new medically assisted treatment. We're not going to fix that with, with an addiction hotline. Nope. But yeah, right. that's who's dying. Yep. And we're doing nothing about it. Yep. So and that's Steve, my position. And Steve was mentioning to me that uh, now they're making gummies with fentanyl in them to try and appeal to an even younger demographic. Right. And you know why a lot of this is happening? Someone just yesterday, someone was asking me, why was it fentanyl that moved into all these things? Why didn't they do it with, with heroin? And, and I think the one argument, uh, it, it, it's a good question. And, you know, sometimes you don't know the answers. It's not like, you know, the drug cartels of Mexico, you know, these guys are not like, uh, they don't go to trade conferences and, and share white papers and best practices. So we don't really know. I mean, we're just right. guessing, right? right? But it would seem that the reason is, Fentanyl, as you know, is a, is a synthetic chemical. Correct. Right? Handmade, right? It, it, heroin, diacetylmorphine comes from, or codeines, or any of those things come from the poppy plant. Right. So it's got to be cheaper. Fentanyl's got to be cheaper. It, oh, it, it's orders of magnitude cheaper. But, right. but also importantly is you can make as much as you want. Right. You're not rate limited by anything like your poppy yields or anything like that. So I think what probably is causing this fentanyl to keep creeping into all these other things it's just the sheer availability. Of it. The sheer, so I would say, of- yeah, I would say the sheer availability and the profit margin. I think, yes. I mean, because if you look at it from a business viewpoint, it's you know how what are the resources? How easy is it to get? How easy is it to make? And how much can I make? What kind of profit margin do I have? And remember, drug traffickers are the ultimate business. Oh yes, they are ultimate marketers and ultimate businessmen. Yep, right, because they're profit driven. Yep, and they're not held back by any laws or morality, or ethics, or regulatory actions. Nothing. Right. They've got no no, no, no uh, uh, resistance right. to their pure profit motive. So they really are kind of the ultimate business. Yeah. So um, what is your group? What are you, you going to do about this, Michael? Sorry, I don't just mean you personally. I know I'm putting you on the line, Everett. What are you going to no, do about no, it? No, you can ask me personally. Okay. Because I okay. can solve it personally. Okay. Someone just got to hand me about $20 billion. 
Okay. Um, so what we're doing, so the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition, I tried to model it um, uh, much on the mad, mad mothers, the mothers against drunk driving. Um, right. Candy, Candy Leitner, uh, the founder of that, is is the great one of the greatest advocate in the history of advocacy. She goes to heaven and she meets the 350,000 people that will not have died in drunk driving incidents uh, since the day she started her work. The woman's a saint. The woman is a walking saint. And she's done more for this country than, than anyone could calculate. So I tried to look at what she did and how she formed things. I tried to kind of go in the spirit of that. Mm-hmm. What we wanted to be able to, to put together was the voice of this fentanyl problem. Right. That's why we're the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. In the beginning, I thought, well, we're not talking about addiction, so there wouldn't be any connection to all the talk around addiction and substance abuse. But then, of course, we realized the fentanyl new paradigm of death does apply to addicts. Because, And I'll give you the perfect example who made me realize it. My friend Jim Rao, and he runs an organization called Families Against Fentanyl. And if you haven't had him on your podcast, you need to. Jim's the guy pushing hard for getting this fentanyl recognized as a weapon of mass destruction. And he's he's made huge inroads to doing this. He's got Congressman Tim Ryan of of Akron, up up where he lives in Akron, Ohio, was on it with him. He sponsored legislation. Jim's a fantastic guy. Super, super, super advocate. And what, what, what it was when I met Jim and we were kind of at a conference one time, walking around talking again, he was telling me about his son, Tom, who was 15 years a heroin addict and high functioning, never lost his job, hmm. had girlfriends, whatever, high functioning, but hard pardoned heroin addict for 15 years. He was finally ready to get straight. He was, this was the time. It was the nth time he went to treatment. Nobody gets cured on the first time. No one gets into remission on the first time, shall we say. But this was the time. This was going to be it. Sunday morning, they were taking him to rehab. Jim and his wife uh, went to went to mass. They were going to come home from mass and bring Tom to the rehab. He was going to get clean. Tom wanted one last taste. Now, wait a second. Tom had managed to live through this fentanyl stuff for years because he went to the same dealer. He knew the product. He knew how to look at it, whatever. But he wanted that one last taste. Guess what happened that Sunday morning? Couldn't find his dealer. So he went to a dealer he didn't know, and he bought one hit, and it was fentanyl, and it killed him. And then I realized Tom was supposed to go to that rehab that day. That was the one. He was going to have a great life in front of him. He was going to beat this thing. He was going to be clean, and it was all taken from him, just like my daughter's life was taken from her. Yep. Right? Now, again, my daughter did something crazy and stupid because she had a mental illness. She wasn't supposed to die because of that. Tom had a had a relapse and addiction. Who hasn't had that? Every addict's had a relapse. Many, Correct. many, many. Why did he die from a single relapse, a single hit? Yep. And I realized the new paradigm applies throughout. Yep. So this is how we have to think about this. We have to beat this chemical. So you ask how. The how is this. And, 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 and it's going to sound overly simple. It's not. It's very complex when I get into the detail of it with you. But it really is as simple as... We have to message to the kids who are going to take that Xanax pill at that party. But not. this is not just say no, and this is not Nancy Reagan, this is not D.A.R.E. This is significantly more sophisticated. That's and I have, an ad camp, I have an ad company that does multi-billion dollar ads that is in agreement with me on the right way to message about this, and it's this. When I'm talking to the addicted person or the potentially addicted person who's the hard party who takes drugs frequently, chronically, 
and high volume. That's one way of speaking. And, and, and I'll give you where I had this thought about how to speak to the other kid who's not the addict. Kemp Chester, who's the deputy director at the uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy, and a very dear friend of mine, had said to me once, you know, Michael, here at the ONDCP, we're starting to communicate with younger and younger kids. We'd like to get down into programs of five and six-year-olds because that's where the first experiences and behaviors occur that lead to addiction down the road. And I said, Kemp, that's brilliant. I think that's exactly what you guys do. But of course, you do realize there's no meaning to me. Because in the new paradigm, I don't care what happened to the kid at five years old. Frankly, I don't care what happened to the kid five hours ago. My kid makes a decision in the moment. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can do is to find a way to be with him in at that moment and try to influence him away from it. Right? It's in the moment. Yep. I would guess that in my coalition of 12,000 members, the vast majority of those kids who died, they didn't know they were going to take a drug that night, had no intention to. Yep. Now, an addict who dies of overdose knows they're going to take drugs that day. Exactly. They take drugs multiple times every day. Yep. But I'm talking about kids who didn't know until, who didn't know 10 minutes before they took the lethal dose that they were going to even take drugs that night. That's right. So how is a messaging campaign to that kid going to work? There is a way for it to work. It's very sophisticated. It's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> and and it's, it's a very, very sophisticated communication program. And uh, people can come to our Facebook page and see it explained there. I was just going to say, how can people find out? How can so, people find out what you're doing and how can people help? And what can people do? Yeah. What can we do? So what we can do is we can start to change the dialogue in America. And we've, been, we've, had, we've had one big victory and we're almost at our second big victory. Those of us arguing for this fentanyl paradigm and this fentanyl uh, specific actions, okay? And that is fentanyl is now in the national lexicon. The day my daughter died only five years, four years ago, uh, most people didn't know the word fentanyl or they kind of maybe heard it. They didn't know really what it was. I think that almost every American today knows that fentanyl is the opioid problem. I think we know that word. Well, this is important, I think. Because I, I talk about the old paradigm and the new paradigm. The old paradigm and new paradigm is quantitative in the data, but it's also qualitative in the way people think about illicit drug death and how removed it is from them, right? Mm-hmm. Heroin is a word that's ugly and dirty and makes people think of the Hollywood version of a kid in an alley shooting up. And by yeah. the time my kid was never that, I'd know it. So I know my kid's going out playing lacrosse. That's not him. Right. Fentanyl is like a chemical word. It doesn't have that under that seedy drug world kind of sound to it. It's chemical. That's correct. I think that's a big victory. Yep. The next big victory is I think we're about two thirds of the way to winning the victory of realizing that the fentanyl deaths are not overdoses, but they're poisonings. Right. And if we can get to that word and get out of the overdose, because what overdose does right or wrong, and it is wrong, but it doesn't matter. You know, the crowd isn't moral. The crowd is just what it is in reaction. Overdose smacks of of, uh, blame the victim. Overdose is, hey, they overdosed, their problem. They took too much. And that's utterly wrong. But but the crowd crowd can't be accused of immoral. Immorality, it can only be accused or it can only be it can only be uh, 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 assessed how it thinks. It it can't be told it's immoral or unethical. It's the crowd. The crowd thinks that overdose people are people who, who deserved what they got because they did something bad. Yep. Okay. Poisoning shifts that. 
Okay, so as we move in this communication to poisoning, that's what people can do. They can start to get into that dialogue. But the most important thing they can do is to understand that the biggest implication, the most important implication of the paradigm shift is that it vectors into every home in America. Now, for years, the, the, the world of addiction tried to convince people that addiction is not dirty people in dirty places. It's everyone. It's normal. But but it was still rare. Yep. As of 2013, we only had under three million people in America chronically using heroin in an addictive manner. That's a relatively small number. Correct. But now this is affecting everyone who will so much as take a Xanax pill at a party. Right. That's 15 times that number. That now touches every household in America. Every household. Yep. Okay. So in the old paradigm, I don't care if my kid plays lacrosse as a 3.8 GPA, president of the student body, they could still do drugs. And if they've got that weakness, they could still find themselves addicted. They could still overdose. But I would have years of process to figure all that out. Yep. In today's world, my lacrosse playing 3.8 GPA class president goes as all of those super achiever things to a party one night and just out of nowhere makes this decision. Why? Because as great as they're doing everything in life, they got a 17-year-old brain and 17-year-olds do stupid better than they do anything else. (laughs) Takes that pill and he's dead. Yep. No eight years or 10 years to see him going down the slope and try to help, try to get it. Nope, just dead, gone. Yeah. And until we understand that, until that becomes the national dialogue, We can't move. And I know the solution. It's this very sophisticated communication solution. And it has a price tag. And I've assessed the price tag. And it's it's an American commitment of about $20 billion. Hmm. Or or $5 billion for four years or $2 billion for 10. It's a total commitment of $20 billion to a national program that saturates that message everywhere. There's a very specific way we can do it. And uh, until we can get the national dialogue to understand the problem, I won't even bother trying to raise the $20 billion to the government. Yep. Wow. So there wow. You I mean, I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I mean, you're totally right. I get everything that you say. I think that, and I've said many times on the podcast, you know, taking any form of drug at any time is a form of Russian roulette. Yes, it is. You know, and so do you want to do that? Do you want to put the gun to your head with the one bullet and take the chance that when you spin it, it might, you might blow your brains out and it's really no different. And you just, you just make the point even better than I possibly could have hoped to. There's, a, there's another little thing I told you that decisions made in the moment, right, Joni? Yep. But there's yep. another point of the decision that's really important. People say, well, you know, you're trying to tell kids and kids, kids don't listen. And when you tell them, no, they want to, my, 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 my sophisticated communication program will work with all that. But here is a really important element that people could think of now, okay? Everybody knows there's a danger out there. In fact, we know everybody knows it because, you know, the most common thing I hear in my constituency now is the kid dies with a half a pill next to them. I know there's something, they're trying to be a little safer. They don't understand the science the way I do. And they don't understand if they got the wrong pill from the wrong end of the batch, you could break it into 50 pieces and everyone would still die. Yeah. 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 But think about it this way. I go to a party and my friend, Jimmy, who I've known all my life, comes over and he says, let's let's get high tonight. You know, I got this Xanax prescription. Come on, take a bar of Xanax with me. We'll get a little buzz. And he gives me that Xanax bar. It came from Jimmy, 
who I know has anxiety and I know has a prescription for this. And he's had one for a couple of years now. I'm not going to make that connection to Mexican drug cartels Mm -hmm. and counterfeit pills, even though I know it's out there. I'm just not going to make that connection. Yep. So I take the pill and I can assure you if Jimmy's got a, a Xanax prescription, he's been taking it for years. I can assure you there are times he ran out and he went on the street. Jimmy is, has often used Xanaxes that did not come from CVS. Right? right. And so, but I don't think that way. Hey, it's my buddy, Jimmy, and he's got the bottle of pills. He's always had those pills. We're taking a pill tonight. I'm just not going to make that connection. And, 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 and unfortunately, if it's the wrong pill from the wrong batch, I'm done. Yep. Yep. Michael, thank you for everything you're doing. Once again, I'm so sorry that you had to lose Amanda to go down this road, but I think that getting the word out on what you're doing, and I completely agree with everything you're saying about a paradigm shift, and I think it's huge. And your website is fentanylawarenesscoalition.org. It's actually the FAC, the FAC, the dash FAC, Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. The dash FAC. Dot org. Dot org. Or there's more information on my own uh, personal family website, which is Octus, A-C-T-U-S dot org. They can find me either place. They can get some information. We're on Facebook at Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. So they can find us there too. There's good information. Awesome. Just thank you again for this, Joni. You know, I sometimes quote, uh, I used to be a very big fan of the singer Harry Chapin, if you remember him. Yep. And I heard him say at a concert one time when he was asked about doing his uh, his uh, 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 his work in all that he did in giving half his concerts away for free to help people. And he was asked about doing that and how it did. he didn't get as rich as he could have. And he says, and he, he quoted Pete Seeger, a friend of his, who said that when you work in this world, you meet the people with the live hearts and the live minds. And I have to say, I lost my daughter and we'll grieve the rest of our lives. We, our hearts are broken. They're shattered. You know, we love that girl so dearly and she loved us so much. And we, and we still do. And she still loves us. But I will say this. We have a chance to work on something really important. And we get to meet the people with the live hearts and the live minds. And our life is so filled with meaning now. It's so absolutely filled with meaning. And we get to meet wonderful people like yourself. We're here trying to make a difference. And it's encouraging to us and it's fulfilling to us. And no one has to feel sorry for us. We are so blessed. Um, We are okay. We grieve, yes. Our hearts are broken. But we need no pity. We need no sympathy. We just want help. And that's it. That's that's what all my members would say. I think that's huge. Thank you so much, Michael. And we feel the same way. We meet people such as yourself who are dedicating your life to making this world a better place. And there's no, there's nothing more rich than that. That's right. Think, yep. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Oops. Thank you for listening. This podcast will give you a lot of food for thought. If you are parents and you have children who you suspect may want to dabble in drugs, You need to somehow educate them on the fact that a lot of these quote unquote prescription pills are coming in over the border from Mexico and they are pure fentanyl and they can kill. And it's a poison. It's not something the kids should be playing around with. And if you want to get more information, you can go to the-fac.org. That's the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. It's something you need to be aware of. 
and it's scarier than anything I think we've talked about before. So thank you for listening. We'll be back again with another interview. We're going to see about interviewing some more individuals and groups that are involved in this whole awareness of fentanyl and the paradigm shift that we have going on with drugs. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.